All right. Hey, you and welcome. My name's Mike. And in this old podcast, uh, well, today for you folks, I'm telling you a very, a very different story than, than the usual modern uh, true crime stories I have for you. This is actually a story I read about years ago and have always uh, been fascinated with. So I'm very excited to bring it to you. And to do that, I have to bring you back over 200 years to the American Revolution, my friends. Hell yeah. Think think of the old North Church, of Concord and Lexington, of the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, all that, that cool shit. And now to all that, I'm, I'm sprinkling in some serial killers. Wait, what? Yeah, there's a, there's a few in this one. You know, this was a time of war, of legends, and here we definitely have a tree more to add to that time period. We have two brothers and the Mason of the Woods. You know, um, H.H. H. Holmes, he often gets credit for being America's first serial killer, even though a lot of that is shrouded in mystery and bullshit. And these guys, they predate him by a good, a good 100 years. So instead of a murder hotel, we got woods, we got muskets, and we got raids. On the frontiers of an early America, two brothers set out in that, you know, uh, untamed, lawless land, and they found it, <laughs> they found it quite the delight, my friends. They found it very comfortable for their desires. Neither avarice nor want nor any of the usual inducements to the commission of crime seemed to govern their conduct. A savage thirst for blood. A deep-rooted enmity against human nature could alone be discovered for their actions. Plunder was not their object. They took only what would have been freely given to them, and no more than what was necessary to supply the immediate wants of nature. They destroyed without having suffered injury, and without the prospect of benefit. Mounted on fine horses, they plunged into the forest, eluded pursuit by frequently changing their course, and appeared unexpectedly to perpetrate new horrors, at points distant from those they were supposed to lurk. That was what a judge wrote about the Harp brothers, and they seemed inhuman, more like demons than men in the atrocities they would commit. And also, I want to give a shout out to America's first serial killers, a biography of the Harp brothers by Wallace Edwards, and also the Outlaws of Cave in Rock, by Otto Rothert for being this episode's main sources. You know, it's surprisingly hard to find information on people who lived almost 300 years ago, if, if you can believe that. And as always, please, if you could rate, review this podcast, follow, subscribe, it helps out more than I could ever tell you. And if, if you do that, I promise, I promise, I will give you a virtual hug when you least expect it. Now, let's give it a go. The Harp brothers, Mikaja, or Mykeia, depending on how you pronounce it, and Wiley Harp were born Joshua and William, and they were born any time between 1748 and 1768. Records aren't, uh, aren't really great for, for obvious reasons um, about when exactly they were born, but one of the first things you really, really need to know about the Harp brothers is that they were not, dun dun, uh, brothers. Most uh, contemporary reports, you know, back in the day, um, they refer to the Harp, the Harp uh, brothers, you know, their exploits, they refer to them as brothers, but modern historians think they're actually more, they were probably cousins instead, uh, born to Scottish brothers, 
John and William Harp, who immigrated to America with their wives and their two infant sons to Orange County, North Carolina. So the Harp brothers, Mikaja and Wiley, they were cousins, but they were close, like brothers. So that's how we will refer to them as. Although we don't know their exact birth date, there was only two years in between the two of them. And their fathers were in the British Army, and they fought in the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. Now, now not a whole lot is known about the boys' early lives, except that they, they grew up in, like, relative luxury, uh, compared to, you know, the struggles of a lot of the colonials uh, around them. So, so kind of why they would become what they became, um, it's kind of a mystery, unless it was just the horrors of war, which we will get to. Now, to, to kind of set the scene, uh, 1700s frontier America, which was basically everything west uh, of the Mississippi all the way to the um, Pacific Ocean, essentially, it was an extremely harsh place to live. It truly was, was wild. No rule of law and nobody to enforce the laws that were in place. Um, you know, frontier justice was the order of the day, basically bounties and good old fashioned revenge. Tough, like, doesn't do it justice, carving out a place to live in, like, the wild frontiers. You know, some farmland in the dense forests west of the Appalachians, in, like, the wildest of the wild, the pure untamed. It was not something for the faint of heart. You know, calling for help? Eh, uh, not really a thing. You're... You're kind of on your own, to be honest. You know, maybe people had kids, um, well, <laughs> children often died of the countless ailments uh, that could befall them, but they also, people also needed as many hands on deck as possible to survive out there. You had, you had kids because you needed help around the farm. So at the, at the time of the story, everything west was a big old question mark, and that is where the majority of our story takes place. You know, at the time, planning never went further than the season you were in hoping that, you know, next spring would bring something more. And everything was scarce, except the land and the sky. And danger, danger, of course, that was not scarce either. Diseases, wild animals, accidents, uh, raids by the natives, you know, it's all that. And of course, raids by the non-indigenous people too. Your, your, your neighbor may be just as likely to kill you for your cow as for your field. The people who lived in these areas around this time, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, they were mostly Scottish uh, and Irish, people who had developed you know, a distaste for authority, so they were coming from, from countries that were under the yoke of, of another power. They wanted to get away from that. They wanted to get away from, from civilization, you know, as far away from it as they could. They wanted to get far away, you know, from government, giving an even more lawless nature to an already lawless place. Plus, uh, they did bring their whiskey with them, and hence, hence why, you know, Kentucky is famous for bourbon, which came from, like, Scottish and Irish whiskey. So, the people living there, a lot of them just wanted to get away. And, um, some wanted to get away just a teeny bit more than others, like criminals from the more populated uh, eastern states. They would come to these areas looking for an escape. And so, bandits, you know, around here were pretty, were pretty common. The frontier population of Kentucky around this time was about was about 200,000 people trading, agriculture, that was, you know, the center of life for them. And, you know, it was still very wild. Buffalo and bears were very common in the area. So the story of the Harps, it spills out across that area. Really, really four states in particular. Kentucky, 
Mississippi, Illinois, and Tennessee. In the late 1700s, uh, these states were literally on the edges of society. They lacked, you know, the, the infrastructure the, and the authority. And that was exactly why people like the Harps wanted to go there. They, they would thrive in, in the anarchy and in the, in the wilds. So growing up close to one another, Mikaja and Wiley got the nicknames of Big and Little, owing to Mikaja's much larger stature. Uh, Mikaja was a bit of a brute by most accounts, quick-tempered, and he wasn't afraid to keep it to himself. You know, from an early age, he uh, wasn't the quite reserved type. Now, it wasn't really until 1775 that, that the duo would catch uh, the attention of the authorities and would begin, you know, running for the rest of their lives, and then would hence fall into folklore and legend, uh, you know, over the next two centuries until until today. But that wasn't initially what they wanted to do. Surprisingly, they didn't plan on going on the run for the rest of their lives. So they were born and they grew up in North Carolina. And their dream, the brothers, the cousins, but we'll call them brothers, their dream was to become slave overseers on the plantations of Virginia. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine if that's what you want to grow up to be. That's how fucking big of a piece of shit you have to be if that's the kind of job you want. It was the overseer's job to punish slaves, uh, you know, for any minor infraction, and those punishments would be pretty, pretty brutal, like lashings, beatings, for just talking out of turn. And that was what they wanted. When I grow up, that's what I want to do for a living. Wow, well, that's right there, I suppose you got dead giveaway for what they would go on to become. But, unfortunately for the brothers Harp, um, there was like this little whole thing where a pesky bunch of patriot rebels, they themselves had dreams that kind of clashed with the Harps, and they kind of acted on those dreams. And when the Revolutionary War went and broke out, after the shot heard round the world was fired at the old North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts, one spring day in 1775, well, um, that kind of sort of disrupted the Harp Boys' plans. See, what the Harp Brothers, they wanted to do, um, that's pretty fucking sick. But what they would go on to actually do was sicker. And their, their hatred, their hatred of people and, well, kind of America itself, it actually stemmed from something that uh, Mikaja and Wiley's fathers, something that happened to their fathers, John and William. See, when the American Revolution broke out, John and William, they tried to, tried to join the Patriot cause, but they were rejected, uh, owing to their prior involvement with the Brits during the earlier regulatory movement of 1766 to 1771. What happened during those times was, well, in North Carolina, Again, this is, you know, four years before the American Revolution broke out. There was kind of a popular uprising uh, by the population at the time against the colonial rulers, the British rulers, um, essentially because they were super corrupt. The government was super corrupt and people were just not having it. Now, that was put down by, by the British, but it was kind of like one of those foundations that would go on. It'd be another spark of the many sparks that would go on to light the fire of the American Revolution. And it helped spread the idea of the patriots and that you know, corrupt government, taxation without representation, all that sort of business. So, as John and William Harp were known soldiers who had helped, you know, put down this spark of revolution, 
Now that the actual revolution was going on, um, the Patriots didn't really have any time for them at all. So this led to our Harp brothers, their sons, Mekaji and Wiley. Um, well, they were like, listen, instead of going off to become slave overseers, they instead, they joined the British side during the Revolutionary War. But they didn't join the British out of like any kind of patriotic duty. It was more like they were just so pissed off that their fathers weren't allowed to join the Patriots. They were like, fine, well, we're going to join the British then. So Mikaja and Wiley, though, they didn't start out as regulars. They weren't even paid for their work. What they did, they did for the love of it. According to the journal of one Captain James Wood, who will come up again in our story, the Harps, they joined, uh, they joined what he called a rape gang. And, uh, yeah, that it's, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. Basically, their job was to go around pillaging their way through the Patriots' uh, supporting homesteads uh, on the countryside. You know, while the soldiers were away fighting battles, this little group would go around to the defenseless villages and towns and, um, well, doing what their name suggested and go around stealing, robbing, and murdering farmers and the people helping helping supply the uh, the Continental Army and the revolutionaries. You know, you guys remember that movie, The Patriot, and um, there's one scene in that movie where the evil British guy, he comes along and he locks all the villagers into the church and then he sets the church on fire. That was their kind of deal. Um, it was only uh, probably just a, a good bit more horrific than just that. During this time, the murderers, they tried to kidnap four young girls, and when Wiley Harp uh, attempted to assault one of them in North Carolina, he was shot, uh, but he was only wounded by a certain American patriot, none other than Captain James Wood. Now Wood, he would go on to be elected governor of Virginia in 1796, and he has his own whole, like, interesting story, but that's for another time. So Wiley recovered from his brush with James Wood of the Continental Army, and the Harps, they would go on to fight in several battles around the borders of North and South Carolina during the American Revolutionary War. Eventually, though, they would leave the army when the British uh, surrendered at Yorktown in 1781. And uh, the Harp brothers, Mickey and Wiley, not really, they weren't really too keen on being, uh, you know, a whole part of this new United States of America. And so they left for the frontier moving to where the majority of our story takes place. Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Illinois. So fresh out of the King's army, uh, they in fact first, first off, they hooked up with a band of Cherokee, joining them in raids in North Carolina and Tennessee against, uh, against Patriot homesteads and villages, often killing and burning. Uh, eventually, the Patriots would round up a strong militia and drive them from the area. And at some point around this time, shortly after the end of the war, the two would come up with a really ding, bright idea to get revenge on Captain Wood, who had, who had shot Wiley. And so they decided to kidnap his daughter, Susan Wood. Not only, not only would they carry out their plan to kidnap Susan, they would also take another girl named uh, Maria, she's also sometimes called Betsy, Davidson, forcing the women to be their wives. Now, I use that term very loosely. Um, they were pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They were just, they were just slaves to the brothers. And essentially, they knew that any refusal to comply with their demands meant pretty extreme uh, violence. So, like, while they were called their wives, and I'll refer to them as their wives, 
There was nothing, absolutely nothing mutual about this. They were kidnapped and subject, uh, subjected to horrific abuse. So the Hart brothers, they dragged these poor women, uh, along with a few of their cronies, back to Tennessee with them. And along the way, an acquaintance of the brothers, uh, a Moses Doss, he, he made the mistake of interrupting uh, Wiley, Little Harp. While he was giving uh, his wife a beating, Moss was like, okay, you stop that now. Um, then this was swiftly followed by the two brothers beating him to death for daring to tell the boys how they should treat their quote-unquote wives. The small group then eventually settled in a Cherokee village named Nickajack, which is southwest of what is nowadays called Chattanooga, Tennessee. The brothers and their, their captive wives would remain in the village in, in relative stability for around the next 10 years. During that time, both women gave birth to two children each. It, it's actually uncertain though which child was fathered by which harp as they, um, well, you know, they kind of shared the women. And, and all the while, by the way, they were continuing, you know, to raid and rob any villages, any villages they could. By 1797, they'd moved into a cabin in Beavers Creek near Knoxville, Tennessee. And later, that same year, Wiley would meet a woman called Sarah Rice, the daughter, the daughter of a minister. Wow, the perfect guy to meet a daughter of a holy man. He seemingly fell in love with the woman and he took her as his only wife, passing his previous wife, Susan Wood, on to Mikaja. So Mikaja had two wives, while Wiley had Sarah. And by the way, uh, descriptions of the Harp Brothers, they're, they're kind of sort of vague at best, but, but like straight up neither were described as, as handsome. Uh, Mikaja was said to be over six foot tall, strong, uh, dark-skinned, weather-beaten face for a Scottish guy. Uh, he also had black matted hair and black eyes, like a doll's eyes. Uh, the younger Wiley, shorter, cold blue eyes and red hair. So, so they set up shop there just outside Knoxville, Tennessee. They cleared land. They had a corral for horses and some land for farming. Sounds like they're settling down to be farmers in good old Tennessee. Um, no. That was a ruse. That was absolutely just a ruse for anyone who knew them, anyone passing by. See, this was like kind of sort of their legit business. I mean, they had no desire to actually do any of it. No, they were bandits, true and true. They, so they set up this little farm, but they would just rob everything from everyone around them. They would rob animals and horses from those nearby, selling them at markets. Sometimes they would set fire to a nearby farmer's stables and barns. So while you're trying to put out the fire, then they would sneak into your house and just take everything that wasn't nailed down. And they were often accused of this, but every time they were like, poof, Jesus. Don't know what you're talking about beats me while he's like selling your horse right in front of you. Other farmers uh, in the area would eventually get sick of the Harp brothers constantly stealing their pigs and their horses, then selling the livestock in front of them at the market. So a big old gang got the, the torches and the pitchforks and marched on the Harp cabin. But the brothers somehow getting wind of this they fled Beavers Creek before they arrived. This gang, by the way, it wasn't like 
they were not giving up. They actually followed the Harps and their wives and their kids all the way to the Cumberland Mountains, which in those days was a fair bit north. Like now, a little bit over an hour's drive. Back then on horseback, it's a it's a hike. And there they were captured. The farmers were, were not going to let this go. And so uh, Mekaja and Wiley, they were bound and they were dragged back to Knoxville. But just outside of town, they somehow, they somehow managed to undo the ropes and they managed to escape on horseback into the woods, never to be seen again by those guys. Or so they thought. Around this time, they were also suspected of murdering a man named Johnson, whose body had been found in the Holstein River near Knoxville. Uh, this Johnson fella, his torso had been ripped open and stuffed with rocks. And that was something that would later become a, a trademark of the Harp's victims. And so when they, when they were driven from, from Knoxville, this seemed to spell the end of just any type of pretending to be normal for, for the brothers. The two finally just snapped and would now, from now on, they wouldn't put up any pretenses. They would just give in to their ultra, ultra violent tendencies. And so they embarked on a murder spree that kind of makes most modern day serial killers look pretty lame, to be honest. Like, it's still regarded as one of the most savage, bloody, and cruel in the history of the United States of America. Seriously, some of the horrible shit these guys got up to is, it's unrepeatable. But I mean, I'll, I'll give it a go. So strap in for this one because it's gonna get a hell of a lot worse. So, so the Harps, they fled Knoxville. They found their, they found their tree wives who had been hiding in the woods. I mean, I mean, on one hand, two were kidnapped. So I don't know why they didn't just make a run for it while they could. But on, on the other hand, like, where would they go? This is the wildest frontier. And, and the Harps are not the only bandits in those woods. So their infamous spree started out in Knoxville, which back then was the capital of Tennessee. And from there, they headed north toward Kentucky where they killed a man in Knox County and another man, a peddler named Peyton, on the Wilderness Trail, stealing his goods and horse to add insult to brutal death. By the end of the year, the Harps had moved up north to Kentucky, where they killed two travelers from Maryland named Packa and Bates. One was shot through the heart by musket, the other's head cleaved open with a tomahawk. Again, they used their favorite method of disposal, disemboweling and filling the corpse with rocks and throwing the body into the river. Now, the infamy of the Harps brothers really began when the body of John Langford, another traveler heading to Kentucky from Virginia, was discovered. A local innkeeper directed authorities in the, in the direction of the Harps boys. John Langford, he had met the Harp brothers at, a, at an inn and he, he happened to just offer to buy them breakfast, unfortunately revealing he had some money. And so they went out for a walk together and the next time John was seen was, well, it was his corpse. And so when the local innkeeper pointed the finger at the harps, Posse was out after them. The brothers, they were captured on Christmas day and jailed in Danville, Kentucky. And the two men and their, again, Three wives were charged with murder. 
They were charged with murder after they were found with some of John Langford's items. But but this um this spell of incarceration would would only be brief with the two managing to escape custody soon after. They they managed Mikaj and Wiley managed to cut a hole in the jailhouse wall. Their wives who were also in jail were left behind as they were all pregnant at the time. The three women by the way, Susan Wood, Maria Davidson and Sarah Rice all were charged with the murder of John Langford, but none would be prosecuted. So now the Harps brothers were on the run. Now it's just guys being dudes. A posse was now formed to hunt down the Harps brothers, with the sole intention of capturing the fugitive brothers and taking them straight to the gallows. It's the hot place for you, pal. The duo, though, were undeterred by their little uh, sojourn into the prison system, and they were fast on the run. The posse that was hunting them, it, it almost got them a couple of times. It was always like hot on their heels. At one stage, the hunters following the Harps brothers, they stopped off at the farm of one Colonel Daniel Trebue, asking him to join them as they tracked down the Harps. But, but he said, no, guys, I'm sorry, I can't help you out. He was waiting for his son to come home with their dog. His son had just been sent over to a nearby friend to, to borrow some flour. Unfortunately, while Colonel Daniel Tribue was waiting for his son, the Harps encountered his son first. And two weeks later, his mutilated body was found. Upon hearing of this, Kentucky Governor James Jarrett put a $300 bounty on each of the Harps brothers' heads. This, this was a serious chunk of change in those days. Like today, you're talking over $50,000. So in response, a man named John Leeper would raise a new, larger posse, intent on finally hunting down the bloody harps and ending their reign of terror. Escaping north away from their pursuers, the harps killed more men. It's just the two of them on the run and they were stacking up bodies left, right and center. Uh, Frederick Stump. They came across him while he was fishing and he saw them, you know, he was like, hey, you guys join me. You know, he prepared some food for them. He got out his fiddle. Frederick's remains were later found in the river. Guts replaced with rocks. By, by the way, you're probably wondering how do they keep finding the victims if they have rocks in their stomachs? Well, the currents of the river that would often toss the body around so the rocks would fall out and the body rise up. And it's thought that as they trekked through the woods, anyone they came across was fair game to them. Next, near the mouth of the Saline River in Shawnee Town, the bodies of three men were found. They had been camping by a fire when the, when the harps stumbled across them, and of course, promptly shot and murdered all three men. And so they escaped the posses sent after them, including John Leapers and also another one, another bigger, better trained posse organized by a certain Captain Young. Captain Young was called the Exterminator. Oh, hell yeah. And they marched uh, throughout Kentucky going after bandits and other outlaws. And so the Harp brothers on the run the entire time committing more acts the entire time they're on the run, they ended up along the Ohio River in southeast Illinois. And now this marks probably the most famous part of the Harp legend. 
when the two brothers, along with their three wives and children, hit out at Cave in the Rock in southeast Illinois, just off the Ohio River. Uh, yep, by the way, you, he you heard me. Uh, Susan, Maria, and Sarah, who were all freed from jail after the judge declined to prosecute them for the murder of John Langford, they went off and rejoined their husbands. It's, it's crazy. So, so Mickey Jan Wiley left them behind as they were pregnant and they gave birth in jail. The townsfolks, they felt so sorry for them. You know, they thought they were just so pathetic. They were in such a bad state and they saw, you know, you're married to serial killers. They gave them food. They gave them clothing and they sent them and they sent them on their way back, you know, to return to Knoxville. The three women then uh, promptly about-faced and would follow their husbands to Illinois. And we can only guess they organized this while in jail. So, their new home was Cave in the Rock, or just Cave in Rock. And it was a notorious, like, notorious pirate hangout. Filled with, you know, the exact kind of people the boys could comfortably hide amongst, or at least for a while. Like, think of a den of debauchery. You know, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy this cave in rock. It was full of criminals and outlaws driven from Kentucky by Captain Young, the exterminator, so they all joined up at Cave in Rock. Chief amongst the river pirates of Cave in Rock was a man named Samuel Mason, another notorious bandit who led the Mason gang, who were river pirates and highwaymen. Now Samuel Mason, he was born in Virginia in 1739, and he too, he served in the Revolutionary War. He was a captain in the Ohio County Militia, and he helped uh, lead raids against the pro-British Seneca tribe in Northeast Pennsylvania. To, to, to actually talk a little bit more about Samuel Mason, um, after the war, he was an elected official and justice of the peace in what is today Washington County, Southwestern PA. Um, and he later moved on to Kentucky, and there he engaged in just full-on criminality like I can only he I can only like presume he found it a lot more lucrative than honest work being a justice of the peace <laughs> now he himself would become extremely uh, notorious operating with his gang out of the woods in Missouri and being a highwayman who terrorized Natchez Trace now Natchez Trace is a forest trail a well a historic one really that goes from Nashville in Tennessee all the way southwest to Natchez in Mississippi. It's an extremely long trail through, through the woods and over hills, 440 miles long, that's over 700 kilometers. And it links the Mississippi River to the Cumberland River. And it's been used for, for like centuries, going back to like prehistoric times. It, like it was initially a trail that animals used when they were migrating. And later it was used by, by the Native Americans and they cleaned it up and they began using it. And then later the European settlers would use it. I mean, I mean, picture in your mind a trail through the woods surrounded by thick forests on all sides. It's... It's exactly that. Used, it was used by traders, everyday folk, preachers oftentimes. And that is where Samuel Mason and his gang would stalk, rob, and kill folk they came across going down that trail. And that's where Samuel Mason would get the name Mason of the Woods. 
Really? Like, this part sounds like an urban legend, like the Blair Witch Project or something. It's actually pretty cool, someone should make a movie out of this. See, when they would rob and kill folks traveling up and down the forested trail of Natchez Trace, Samuel Mason would leave a message written in the blood of his victims. Done by Mason of the Woods. Pretty, pretty scary shit. And now this bastard was joined by two more, the, the Harps. Now, though whereas the Harps were bloodthirsty brutes who really kind of, who really kind of thought of nothing more than torture and mayhem, Samuel Mason, he was like the intelligent serial killer criminal. Like he wasn't as bloodthirsty as they were. He was more interested in like robbery than the actual killing itself. Now, Cave in Rock, that would be described as, in 1807, thusly. It is a very curious cavern. I could not help observing what a very convenient situation this would be for a hermit or for a covent of monks. I have no doubt that it has been the dwelling of some person or persons, as the marks of smoke and likewise some wooden hooks affixed to the walls sufficiently prove. Formerly, perhaps, it was inhabited by Indians, but since, with more probability, by a gang of that banditti, headed by Mason and others, who, a few years ago, infested this part of the country and committed a great number of robberies and murders. To describe Cave in Rock for you, it's, it's a giant cave mouth uh, in a cliff formation. The cliffs are about 60 feet high, and it's literally, the cave is literally right on the river. Like, there's a steep uh, decline, and the river is right there. The Ohio River, and uh, the river it's stretching about, it's about half a mile, it's pretty big to, to the other bank. So the mouth of the cave, it's very large, has a sandy floor, and it's also quite tall too. It's not a very claustrophobic cave. Uh, it's tall, it's wide, it's not particularly deep, maybe, maybe a hundred feet deep. Uh, and back towards the end, there's actually a hole in the ceiling, like in the, in the roof of the cave, letting in light. So even at the back, it's never too dark. Definitely big enough to hold a gang and their families. And it provided a clear view of the Ohio River. So, so lookouts, they would spot boats going up and down and, and you know, juicy targets spied. They'd get, their, they'd get their little rowboats going and, well, do what marauders do. Rob, rape and kill any they found. And they found a lot. Samuel Mason himself, when he was operating out of Cave in Rock, had been since 1797. This was before he moved up to Natchez Trace and became Mason of the Woods. Uh, he would set up a trap for passing travelers. Like, he put up a sign that said, Liquor Vault and House of Entertainment, open to the public. And, well, any passing captains were lured in. So the posse was still hunting the harps, and they were hot on their trail, but they stopped their pursuit short of cave and rock. So the harps, they were free for now. Samuel Mason and his pirate gang, they gave the, the two brothers, their wives and their kids sanctuary, welcomed them into the fold, and in return the brothers would help Mason and his gang in their raids on their flatboats on the Ohio River, sometimes going after smaller ships they deemed an easy target. Now this, this didn't, didn't actually last too long though, like just a couple of months. Because, get a load of this, the harps were thought too extreme, even for a bunch of murderous pirates like the Mason gang. Like, like when you have a guy who would go on to sign done by Mason of the Woods in his victim's blood, 
And when he says, okay, yeah, you guys, you're, you're a bit too bloodthirsty and evil for me. That's how bad the harps were. One of the brothers' favorite pastimes was to take victims of their piracy, strip them naked, and march them to the top of the cliff over, over, you know, the cliff overhanging the cave and push them off the cliff. Just like just a few days after the Harp brothers arrived, uh, a young sweetheart couple were passing through the area and they were just sitting on the cliffs enjoying the view when the Harps crept up and pushed them off the cliff. Then the Harp, Mikaja and Wiley, they went down to the cave, you know, expecting laughter and applause and then, uh, well, that went down like a wet fart. The other parts, they were not too impressed. They thought it kind of fucked up. Like another time after a robbery on the river, they took one victim, stripped him naked, tied him to a horse, and led the horse up onto the cliff edge above the cave. Then they blindfolded the horse, and then, like a Looney Tunes cartoon, they forced the horse to run off the cliff. And then the harps were like, whoa, dude, look at that, check it out. The other pirates and outlaws were more like, uh, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like I said, the harps loved torture and mutilation, and for them, I think killing was kind of just a byproduct of torturing and brutally mutilating people. But I guess the other bandits were, uh, not too keen. They weren't quite as keen on it as the harps were. In fact, it was said that only because the harps had wives and children, that saved them. Otherwise, the pirates in the cave, Samuel Mason's gang probably would have killed Mikajen Wiley. Eventually, the brothers were driven from Cave and Rock around May 1799. Now, like not being the best at kind of handling rejection, the boys then decided to make their way back to Tennessee to go home, where they returned to uh, what they had been doing before. They began an indiscriminate killing spree, and by July 1799, they were tearing through the countryside. Uh, they began by killing a farmer named Bradbury, 25 miles outside of Knoxville. Now, by this stage, the locals assumed the Harps would never come back after what they had done. They had been driven from town. Boy, were they wrong. Later, the body of a young boy named Isaac Coffey was found, his brains smeared all over a tree. And that's when the locals began to think, oh shit. The next victim of the Harps, William Ballard, was subjected to the boy's old favourite of disemboweling and being tossed into a river. And not long after killing Ballard, he was swiftly followed by James Brassel, who had his throat slashed open and his body dumped. What happened was the Harp brothers had come across two other brothers, James and Robert Brassel, met them on the road, and, and the Harps asked them if there was any news. What's going on in the area? What's the latest? The Brassel brothers told of the murders in the area, of William Ballard and of young Isaac Coffey. The Harps then said, oh yeah, you know, we heard about that nasty business. We're actually part of a posse that's hunting the Harps who have returned. Mikaja and Wiley then, for shits and giggles, accused James and Robert Brassel of, of themselves being the Harp brothers and attacked them. Now Robert, he managed to escape on horseback, but James, he wasn't quick enough. The Harps beat the poor man to death, and they slit his throat. Robert Brassel fled, and he managed to, uh, to gather a few men and go back for his brother, whom he found murdered. 
They then tracked the harps and came across them, you know, leaving the area with their wives and their children and all their supplies. And this group that was after them was too afraid to arrest them. They just silently watched them trembling. That's how terrifying the harps were. They had just killed the brother of one of the members of this group and they were still too afraid to arrest them. And as you can imagine, uh, quote, Robert Brassel complained bitterly of the lack of courage displayed by the men he had relied upon to help capture or kill the murderers of his brother. Robert would, uh, by himself, hunt the harps for a time, seeking revenge for his brother. And so they left, going back to Kentucky. Back on their way to Kentucky, the boys stopped to kill another man, John Tully. There's always some time for killing. Once they arrived in central Kentucky, John Graves and his teen son were found to have been viciously murdered, this time using axes. No prizes for guessing who was suspected of this one. By this time, attacks by the brothers, by the way, were almost daily, and authorities were, were desperate to catch up with the two and put a stop to the murders. And they were written about in all, like, the publications at the time. Over in a neighboring county, the brothers killed a little girl, they killed a little boy, and then in a place called Adairville, Kentucky, the boys wiped out the family and servants of the Triswald brothers as they slept in their camp. They wiped out an entire family and their helpers. In early August, while camped out a few miles northeast of Russellville, Kentucky, Mikaja, big harp, he would commit one act of violence that's so deplorable, even he regretted it. But it wasn't, it wasn't so much the brutal method he employed, but the one he employed it against. His own daughter. Apparently, sick of her crying, and worried that her crying would alert the law to where they were hiding out in the woods, he took the girl and savagely bashed her head in against a tree. Like, no, no, not even those closest to the harps, their own children, were immune to, to their evil. Next, they set their eyes on a Judge Silas McBee, who had helped Captain Young, the exterminator, in his efforts to rid Kentucky of outlaws. However, after being, like, deterred from attacking the home of Judge Silas McBee by his large guard dogs, the pair were then offered shelter, along with a fellow guest named Major William Love, by a woman named Mrs. Stegall in her home in Webster County. Now, they knew Mrs. Stegall's husband, Moses, who was out at the time. They'd popped by the Stegall's home uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, one of their horses was lame. And so she said, yeah, here, listen, I'll give you a place to rest for the night. You can spend it in the loft with Major William Love, but, you know, be gone by the dawn. When the two harps reached the loft, uh, well, they did not waste their time. The pair savagely slit the throat of their fellow traveler in his sleep for snoring too loud. The next morning, they got up and they asked for breakfast. Mrs. Stegall, having no clue about the dead Major William Love in her loft, she said she couldn't cook for them uh, that morning. Her four-month-old baby boy, boy was crying. She, perhaps the, the baby was unwell or something. The Harp brothers, they said, no worries. You know, we'll look after your baby. We'll rock him to sleep and, and you can cook for us. And she said, sure thing. She began cooking in a pot and she said, wow, you guys are, you guys are good with kids, huh? 
I can't get him that quiet no matter what I do. How'd you do that? She then went over and saw his blanket was over his, his little face. She pulled it down and saw her baby's throat had been cut from ear to ear. This obviously caused Mrs. Stegel to scream and cry at the sight. And so, naturally, the harps killed her too. Stabbing her in the heart. They then had their breakfast. They rounded up the dogs and locked them inside the house along with the three dead bodies and set the house on fire. They then stole the Stegel's horses and off they went. Little did they know at the time that this act, out of all the evil they'd done, that would be the one that would catch up with them. Two men who saw the fire and were on their way to help put it out, a Hudgens and a Gilmore, they encountered the Harps and were promptly murdered. The Harps, they fled west away from the posse still hunting them. The group had now been joined by Moses Stegel, the, the, the husband of the woman and father of the child the Harps had murdered. Like he returned home to find the bodies of his wife and infant son slain. And now, as you can imagine, he was out for revenge. The Harps were stalking their next victim in Muhlenberg County, Western Kentucky, uh, one George Smith, when on August 24th, 1799, the posse that had been pursuing the brothers for so long finally caught up with them. They came across the Harps and their three wives in the woods and just charged at them. Amidst calls for their surrender, the brothers, they tried to flee, and in a brief firefight, Mikaja was shot in the leg and shot in the back. The Harps then fled on horseback and the women were rounded up. Mikaja was soon overtaken, and so he turned and he took musket aim at his pursuers, led by John Leeper, who had been chasing them for a long time now. Mikaja pulled the trigger. But the musket didn't, didn't fire. So he whipped out his tomahawk and he charged John, who, in return, calmly aimed his musket at Big Harp and pulled the trigger, shooting him in the chest. Mikaja then fled on horseback once again, but soon slipped from his saddle. John Leeper caught up with him again, this time joined by Moses Stegel, whose wife and baby had been brutally murdered. In like the ultimate act of, that's fucking hardcore, Moses Stegel took his knife and slowly began sawing off Mikaj's head, taking his time and demanding that he confess his crimes. Still conscious and in between his screams of agony, Mikajah Harp apparently admitted to 20 murders as he was slowly decapitated by Moses Stegel. Famously, his head would be placed on a pole along Natchez Trace as a, as a clear and pretty darn brutal and hardcore display of frontier justice and, and as a warning to any other wannabe outlaws. This place would later become known as Harp's Head. Now, Little Harp had managed to get away from his pursuers, and no trace of him him was found. All the women, they were rounded up and jailed and, and charged with, well, <laughs> many crimes. But eventually, all three wives, they would be found not guilty. Uh, it's thought the judges took pity on them and on their pathetic state, just like, you know, the previous judges had. 
Only this time, the women, they, they didn't follow the one remaining harp. So, one down and one ago. But but no trace of Wiley Little Harp was found. Word was spread. Word was spread across Kentucky. Posse's tracker sent out. It was like he disappeared. What Wiley Harp did do was he quickly assumed an alias, the alias of John Seton, and he joined back. He went back to Samuel Mason at Cave and Rock. This was around 1802. And from there, they went down to Natchez Trace and began a series of robberies done by Mason of the Woods. Now, separated from Mikaja, Big Harp, Wiley, Little Harp, had managed to, he kind of, he managed to refrain from his more savage instincts, and he would remain with the gang. It seems like the combination of them both together, really, they really brought out the worst in each other. So now that it was just Wiley, he wasn't quite so vicious, but he couldn't escape from what he had done. Unlike his brother, though, it would be greed that would be the downfall of Little Harp. As he heard word, you know, he was a part of the Mason gang now, and he heard word of a, of a nice little handsome bounty that had been offered for the capture, dead or alive, of his own pirate boss, Samuel Mason. So, see, not only did, did Samuel Mason have bounties on him in American territories, he also, he also had bounties on, on, on him in Spanish territories as parts of the Mississippi Territory, you know, at the time was owned by the Spanish Empire, headed up by New Madrid in present-day Missouri. So, a warrant and reward was issued for Samuel Mason, and at one point he was arrested by Spanish authorities. Now, he managed to convince them that he hadn't, I haven't committed any acts of, you know, violence or criminality in Spa Spanish territories, you know, maybe I did elsewhere, but not, you know, where you have jurisdiction. But. But poor old Samuel, um, he didn't, he didn't conce conceive of the notion that the Spanish, maybe they'll hand him over to the Americans, where he was most definitely wanted. The Spanish handed him over, but he managed to escape authorities. It was around that point that Wiley Harp, he conspired with a fellow pirate named James May. James May, he was another sack of shit driven out of Kentucky by the exterminator. And so the two of them, the brain trust over here, they decided they would claim the reward on Samuel Mason. Now, it's not known if they actually killed Mason or if he died of some other illness. Um, he was getting a little bit old by this stage, so maybe they just took advantage of the present circumstances. But I mean, hey, listen, these are two, these are two people with a long track record. So regardless of how he actually died, Samuel Mason had his head cut off with a tomahawk. Then they wrapped his severed head in clay to try and preserve it. And Wiley and James went down to Natchez to deliver this reward of Samuel Mason. So they walked into court. They presented the head of the Mason of the Woods to the judge. And the judge was, yep, that's, that's Samuel Mason, all right. However, while in the courtroom trying to claim the reward, Someone recognized Wiley Harp going under the name John Seton and asked, he should be arrested, he be arrested too, along with James May. He was clapped in irons, and more people would come forward to identify John Seton as Wiley Little Harp. All, no, this is my, all his chickens, all his chickens were coming home to roost. 
Now, at one point, Wiley and James May, they managed to escape the prison, and they made a, they, they made a run. They booked it for Natchez Trace, hoping to, hoping to escape into the woods. But a gang quickly caught up with them and brought them back to Natchez. There, they were put on trial. The territory against John Seton and James May, and they both pleaded not guilty. Each was found guilty. And on the afternoon of February 8th, 1804, Wiley Harp and James May were taken from the jail to a field known as Gallows Field, just north of town. A rope was hung from a large tree and both men had to climb a ladder up and the noose fastened around their neck. The ladder was then removed and they dropped. Their heads were cut off and placed on stakes along Natchez Trace, just like Mickages. And so ends the story of the Harp Brothers, and also the Mason of the Woods. It's, it's quite the tale of like real cruelty and and evil uh, in colonial days. Like it's it's unknown how many victims the Harps actually had. It's thought to be a, it's thought to be around fifty, but the real number will will never be known. But I'm sure there are many many skeletons deeply buried along Natchez Trace. There is, in fact, a legend about Mickage's head. The Harps, they would often travel Natchez Trace, and about halfway along the trail between Nashville and Natchez is a place called Witch Dance. Now, this is an area steeped in superstition since, since the Native American days. And so later, you know, early Europeans, they came to believe that, that witch covens would gather at this place in the middle of the woods and, and have their sabbats and the devil would join them and they would, they would dance around the fire and perform, you know, all kinds of acts. And it was said that everywhere witches' feet touched the ground, the grass would wither and it would die, never to, to grow back again. Now, at one point, the Harps, they were traveling along the route and they came across these barren patches of ground and Big Harp was told, you know, the legend of the witches. Mikaja, he got off, he scoffed and he began jumping on these barren patches, you know, shouting for the witches to come out and get him. And he began laughing and he began cackling. Nothing happened. But later, when Mikaja was finally killed, his head sawed off and his skull nailed to a tree along Natchez Trace it soon disappeared, said to have been taken by a witch for what he did years before. And it is said that, that even today, people walking in the woods, walking near witch dance, can sometimes hear Mikaj's cackle coming from the woods. And so ends the Harp Brothers and America's first serial killers. Like, just what is legend and what is history, um, kind of sort of difficult to distinguish in these old stories. I mean, come on, like, for fuck's sake, like, it's just so old, the facts are just so unclear at points, but come on, you know what they say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. The Wester, like, was so goddamn wild, and these two cocksuckers were like, certainly the embodiment, the worst embodiment of that, you know, wildness. This one, though, is really messed up. Like, even if it's only half true, even if the shit they did became just embellished over the years, even if half of what they did is true, that's still enough to make them uh, some of the worst serial killers in history, or at least early modern history, anyway. Like, again, I've always been a nerd. It's like my um, guilty pleasure about the American Revolution and colonial times. I think it's just fascinating. But this is one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm pretty glad I wasn't around then. Sinead. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly, I really do appreciate you sticking around for this whole story. It's one I've wanted to tell for a while, so I hope I did a good job and you enjoyed it. Um, please, uh, if you wouldn't mind rating, reviewing, following, subscribing, maybe even some five-star reviews, I would love you forever because it helps out the podcast so, so much. Um, and remember, two podcasts every week and one video every week, so please check them all out and I will talk to you or see you depending on if you know a video comes out sooner or the podcast comes out sooner in a couple of days it'll be in a couple of days regardless so look forward to that but until then please look after each other look after yourselves because I love you Mike out